0: Well, good morning, everyone. It's lovely to see you. And those of you joining online as well, even though I can't see you, it's nice to know you're there. Uh, please open your Bibles, if you have them, to 1 Corinthians 10, verses 14 to 22. It's the, uh, the passage that we read earlier. And we're going to be thinking this morning about the Lord's Supper. So we were sort of in the middle of a series in Romans. We're going to come back to that series in Romans um, after the half-term break. Uh, But because I'm away next week camping and didn't feel I could handle Romans 9 to 11 in two weeks, we decided that we would address two very, very important topics that we often assume but don't ever think about and don't ever teach about explicitly, or at least not often. Now, the reason why this is so important for us to do is because recently the evangelical world was kind of rocked by... Um, by a few scandals. And not, you may or may not know this, but the first was to do with someone named Hank Hanegraaff, who was also known as the Bible Answer Man. And he had a very, very popular worldwide radio show, evangelical radio show, where people would call in and ask questions to find out what the Bible teaches about various topics and about various perspectives and, and new teachings that were going on. And he recently converted from evangelicalism to Eastern Orthodoxy, which caused a big sort of ripple through the evangelical world. And his chief reason for citing why it is that he moved from being an evangelical to being, which is you know what we are, to an Eastern Orthodox Christian, is because of the bankruptcy of the view that evangelicals have about the Lord's Supper, and because of the richness, in his words. Of the view of Eastern Orthodox's view of the Lord's Supper. Similarly, recently, and perhaps more popularly, someone named Francis Chan, who's written probably one of the most popular Christian books in circulation today, a book called, it's so popular I can't remember the title now, that's the one, Crazy Love, thank you. Crazy Love, sold, it sold ridiculous amounts of copies, so much so that he was saying that he can just sort of build a hospital with one sign of the check from the money that he made from that book. So the good news is he's putting it to good use, but he did. it's a ridiculously popular book, and Francis Chan is a very popular evangelical, and he came out saying some things about the Lord's Supper that cause ripples through the evangelical world because it sounds... Like he's very much siding with a Roman Catholic view on the Lord's Supper, which is transubstantiation. That the bread and the wine become, are transformed at the words of the priest substantially into the actual body and blood of the Lord Jesus. Now he hasn't gone over to that view, but he did sound very, very sympathetic towards it. And he cites in a later conversation with an Orthodox priest, an Eastern Orthodox priest, that the number one, well not the number one, but one of the top five reasons evangelicals convert to Eastern Orthodoxy or Roman Catholicism is their view of the Lord's Supper. Isn't that extraordinary? Because to many of us who've kind of been familiar with the arguments about transubstantiation and about the real presence of Christ's physical body and blood in the Lord's Supper. For those of us who are familiar with this, this seems utterly aghast. These were sort of the foundational arguments that took place at the Reformation. And we are a Reformed church, a church in the tradition of the Reformation. And so to us it might seem totally bizarre, and yet what this shows to us is is that if we don't teach properly on these things, then we will just drift into whatever the evangelical culture will move towards, and what we're seeing is that if we do that, then really when they discover the rich history of other traditions, then that will become all the more alluring if we don't know properly what we do think, what the Bible does teach about the Lord's Supper. So I hope that is just a little bit of a wake-up call for us to think seriously and properly about what actually is going on in the Lord's Supper. It's not a dead issue from long ago. It's become a very, very live issue in broader evangelicalism today. So what are we to think about the Lord's Supper? Remember, we've been thinking about the Lord's Supper and baptism because these two go together as the new covenant signs for the church. They are both signs and seals of the new covenant. You and I, if we have become a believer in the Lord Jesus, have been brought by his Spirit into the new covenant through faith in him. And the two signs we've been given to mark this out and to mark ourselves out as new covenant people is baptism and the Lord's Supper. They are signs and they are seals. In other words, they point to what has happened to us in Christ but also they are instruments in the spirit's hands to encourage and strengthen and to help us to grow they are a means of grace that is the traditional reformed view of it and i think the biblical view of it as well see here's the first thing what is the lord's supper particularly doing within that the first thing is it is a sign and a seal of remembrance a sign and seal of remembrance Now, um, we're going to come back to that passage in in 1 Corinthians 10, but I want you just to flip over the page and go to the the next chapter, 1 Corinthians 11. We're going to be spending a good amount of time um, in there also. 1 Corinthians 11. This is uh, whenever uh, I do the Lord's Supper and administer the Lord's Supper here. This is the passage that I will quote from. And in verse uh, 23, it says, For I received from the Lord, Paul says, I received from the Lord what I also passed unto you, So very, very clear and embedded into the kind of liturgy, if you like, of the Lord's Supper is that we do it as an act of remembrance, a sign and seal of remembrance, of commemoration of what the Lord Jesus has done for us. Sometimes people come to me and say and ask me, and I've heard this question a few times, why is it that Christians don't keep the Passover anymore? Why don't Christians keep the Passover because when you go back to Exodus and you read the Passover, you see that it's kind of given as a, as a lasting ordinance, as something to be kept from generation to generation and uh, amongst God's people. So the question is, why then don't we do that? And the answer to that question is that we do do that. We do keep the Passover, because keeping the Lord's Supper is the Passover meal for God's people. In other words, the Passover that was being kept, which was about deliverance from slavery in Egypt and being brought into the promised land through the death of a lamb and the blood of that lamb being posted on the doors during the plagues in Egypt. You might be familiar with it. If not, please do go read Exodus. I don't have time to go into that in too much detail. though I'd love to. But all of that, all that they were doing was just a picture, a foreshadowing, something that was just pointing to the real Passover that was to come. A real Passover. Where instead of sitting in houses um, with with blood on the doorposts, we have the blood of Christ over us. Not the blood of a lamb, but the blood of Christ. Instead of eating the Passover lamb, we eat the Lord's Supper. We eat, so to speak, Jesus' flesh and blood. I'm going to come back to what that means a little bit later on. So Christ is our Passover lamb. His blood is over us. The judgment that is passing over us because of Christ's blood that is protecting us is not simply the judgment that's falling on the land of Egypt, but the judgment that will face the entire world. Every single person will stand before God in judgment. And that judgment at the last days, at the final day of judgment, that judgment is passing over us. In other words, all of these things were just pictures, pointers, signposts to what the real thing is, which is what we do. We do keep the Passover. It's very important for us to understand this. Because what that means is that when you and I are gathered here in church to eat and to drink the bread and the wine, to remember the Lord Jesus, his body given for us, His blood shed for us. That he is the one who saved us through his death on the cross. When we do that, it's like we're an Israelite family. The household of God gathered together in the house. It's dark outside. Judgment is passing over us. It's a bit scary, but we're safe here. We're safe here. Because we have the blood of Christ covering us because Christ is the Passover lamb who has been sacrificed on our behalf so we fear judgment no more so when we eat and we drink the bread and the wine it's remembering that just as the judgment passed over the Israelites in the land of Egypt so God's final judgment passes over us because Christ has suffered that judgment in our place isn't that extraordinary what it is what it means And we'll see it's not just a sign, it's not just a memory thing. It's not just like we we have days of memorial to remember key events. But the difference is that the Spirit uses these things to encourage us, to build us up in the faith. We'll see that in a little bit. So in other words, this is a sign of remembrance. That's the first thing. Very clear. In 1 Corinthians 11, if you go back to Luke, you see the same thing. The second thing is that it's a sign and a seal of anticipation. In other words, it doesn't just look backwards to what Christ has done; it looks forward to what Christ is going to do. It anticipates what's coming. Um, when I was younger, my brother um, left South Africa and came to uh, to work in London. For two years, as many South Africans did, and I'll never forget the sort of when he first left, the kind of meal times, because you know we're a family of four, and you sit round the table, and suddenly there's three people round a four-seater table, and it's weird, because there's somebody missing. And so at first it was kind of like a grieving thing, like oh this is this is a bit awkward, just me and the folks, you know, <laughs> what are we going to talk about? Um, But then, towards the end of that time together, it started to look forward to when my brother's visa would run out and he would have to come home. And so it became a looking forward to the time when my brother would be back and sitting around the table with us. And the Lord's Supper has exactly those two elements in it. Because we know At the very first Lord's Supper was with the Lord himself and his disciples, but he is now gone. And he said to his disciples, where I'm going, you can't follow, but I won't leave you alone. I'll give you the spirit. So even though we're not alone, we do mourn the loss of the Lord's physical presence with us. And so when we eat and drink, we, we long for, look forward to the day when we'll eat and drink with him again. Again, just keep a finger in, in 1 Corinthians 10 and 11 and turn with me. Um, well, first of all, while we're in 11, just look at verse 26. Notice how this kind of liturgy of the Lord's Supper ends. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. Notice, until he comes. Until he comes. Embedded into the practice of the Lord's Supper is the looking forward to the coming of Christ. But we can go a bit further. If you turn with me just for a moment to Luke chapter 22... Luke chapter 22, verses 14 and following. This is the Lord in the Gospel of Luke celebrating uh, that Passover meal with his disciples. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. And just by the way, there is some debate about whether or not this meal was actually a Passover meal. Some say yes, some say no. It doesn't matter. Why? Because the Lord Jesus wants us to think of it as a Passover meal. In other words, he is instituting the new Passover meal here, which is why he refers to it as a new Passover meal. I personally think it was a Passover meal, but even if you disagree with me, it is still a Passover meal. Anyway, that's my little aside over. Um, We carry on. I've eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer, for I tell you, I will not eat it again... Until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and he said, Take this and divide it among you, for I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. In other words, the Lord Jesus is teaching them that at some point, the kingdom of God is going to come. And at that point, I will eat and drink this meal with you. So every time we gather, we mourn the loss that at the moment, Jesus is not with us physically in the way that he he was when he was walking around with his disciples, though he is with us spiritually. But we also know that that will not last forever. And so we look forward to his coming, at which point the kingdom of God will not only be Inaugurated like it is now but consummated fully brought into our reality and existence and experience. The heavens and the earth will be reunited. This world will be a new creation where Christ will visibly reign over all of creation and in that moment we will eat and drink with him. We look forward to his coming. Now, in some sense this is like the passover as well because remember when the israelites ate the passover they ate with and it has those kind of weird things about their sort of cloaks tucked into their belts and you think well what's all that about and why is it that they had to use unleavened bread and all this kind of thing and part of it was because they were about to leave so after the passover night they had to be ready to go Because Pharaoh was going to kick them out because the judgment had fallen. God was going to rescue them and so they had to be ready to leave. And in some sense, when we eat the Passover together, we're not only anticipating Christ's coming, but we're ready to leave this world behind. Ready to go to be with him in the new heavens, and the new earth for all eternity. There is a readiness to leave and be with Christ every time we take part in the Lord's Supper. But the final thing, and so far, everything that I've said has been fairly uncontroversial. I hope so, anyway. I hope nothing I've said so far has been terribly controversial. Here's the controversial bit that the sign and seal of the Lord's Supper, as a covenant sign for God's new covenant people, is not only remembrance, not only anticipation, but also participation. In other words, something happens not only in terms of remembering the past or looking to the future, but something happens in the present when we take the Lord's Supper. And this is where the controversy is. Because it wasn't controversial for about 1,500 years in, in the church's life. Everybody agreed that Christ was especially present with his people when they took the Lord's Supper. Everybody agreed that he was present with his people in a way that was unique and cherished. But what did become controversial was the teaching that the Lord's Supper would become it was uh, the idea that the bread and the wine was transubstantiated into the body and blood of the Lord Jesus. This started, this language started with Thomas Aquinas, and that did create controversy. Now actually, what does that mean? When you eat the bread and drink the wine, it still tastes like bread, it tastes like wine, it looks like bread, it looks like wine. In what sense? And what Thomas Aquinas did was he took some Aristotelian philosophy and he said, oh, it's not the outside of the bread, it's the inside of the bread, it's the stuff, it's the essence, the substance. So even though it still looks and tastes like bread and wine, in its inner substance that you can't see and you can't taste, it is the real body and blood of Jesus. Now such a view is only possible if you accept Aristotle's categories of substance and subsistence. But you don't have to accept that because Aristotle is not the Bible. And if you don't accept Aristotle, it becomes a very difficult doctrine to believe. So at the time of the Reformation, what they taught was, no, Christ is especially present with his people. That remained true. Christ is doing something unique with his people, but he's doing it spiritually. Not with his physical body and his physical blood, because that remains in heaven, they said. But he is with his people spiritually. He's doing something with them. This is where 1 Corinthians 10, I think, becomes very, very important. We can easily gloss over it, but Paul is saying something very, very profound. 1 Corinthians 10, this is 14 to 17. Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of christ and is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of christ because there is one loaf we who are many are one body for we all share the one loaf if you go back just to the beginning of that chapter you get the same emphasis repeated in the first five verses i do not want you to be ignorant of the fact brothers and sisters that our ancestors were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea and were all baptized into Moses and the cloud and the sea and they all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them and that rock was Christ so what he's saying is that when The Israelites were walking in the wilderness and they were eating and drinking the miraculously provided food. What they were really being sustained by was Christ. And Paul is using this in the context of the Lord's Supper because what he's saying is when we eat and drink, we are being miraculously sustained by Christ. Because we participate in him. We have fellowship with him in the Lord's Supper. Very important because if, say, for example, I went to some pagan temple somewhere and I took part in their ritual of what they were doing in their pagan worship, which involved eating and drinking something. You would say that if I was eating and drinking in that ritual, I was dabbling in some very, very dangerous things. I hope that you would say that. That actually I was joining in with something that I did not or should not be joining in with. I was participating with it. It was having an effect on me. Well, the same is true with the Lord's Supper. If we come eating and drinking by faith in the Lord Jesus, it's not a miracle that happens apart from faith. It's not, I mean, not magic that happens apart from faith. It's not a magic ritual or formula. But when we come eating and drinking while trusting in Christ, it is a participation in Him. I'm joining in with Him. I'm receiving something from him. I'm drinking from him, and I'm eating from him. The Lord is revealing himself in some special way to us through the Lord's Supper. It's curious, isn't it, that when the Lord Jesus in John 10 spoke about having faith in him, he described it in this way. Now remember, he's talking about having faith in him and being saved. But he talks about having faith like this. That whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood will have life everlasting. Why does he talk about it that way? Because he's referring back to the manner in the wilderness that the Israelites received. That was Christ himself sustaining them. So while they were drinking water and eating bread and, 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 and quail, they were being fed spiritually by Christ. So when you and I take part in the Lord's Supper and we eat and we drink, even though it's bread that we're eating and it's wine that we're drinking, we're being fed spiritually by Christ. In other words, having the Lord's Supper isn't just something we do to remember. It's not just something to remember something in the past or to remember something in the future. It's something that helps us to grow as Christians now and to draw nearer to Christ now. Now. And it's something that helps him uh, that, that he uses to draw near to us now. These are profound things. But in broader evangelicalism, this aspect of the Lord's Supper is being forgotten. And this, I think, is why people are finding it so attractive to go over to orthodoxy and to Roman Catholicism. Because we've oversimplified it, to the point where it's become meaningless. Why have it once or twice a month or once a week like we've been having it now? It's just a memorial. You could do it once a year. But the church has never thought of it that way. Never. This is a totally novel way of thinking about it. that has been around since the Anabaptists in the Reformation. Zwingli had a view that was kind of similar to that. But he was the only one out of all the reformers and even his successors abandoned that view. In other words, evangelicalism didn't hold this view originally. It's drifted into this. And this is a problem because it isn't what the Bible teaches. Consider just for a moment, just as we close. And by the way, I'm not, again, not saying everything that needs to be said about the Lord's Supper. I haven't said anything about the fact that we have it together, which is vitally important because it is about being one loaf, one body together. And when we eat and drink of it, the Spirit uses it to bind us together. That's also so important. But consider for a moment the ending of Luke's Gospel. That when these two disciples are walking on their way to... Emmaus and the Lord Jesus has been crucified, and they're talking about these events. Do you remember the story? And he's walking with these two disciples, and Jesus is teaching them and explaining to them how it's been taught from Moses all the way through the scriptures that the Messiah must come and be crucified and must rise again. And why are they not, why are they being so slow to embrace this? But they still don't recognize that it's the Lord Jesus themselves, the resurrected Lord Jesus himself, who's walking with them. But the moment when they do recognize him is the moment when he breaks bread with them. Luke 24. The moment he breaks bread with them, their eyes open and they know it's him. Why? Why did the Lord choose to do it that way? It's because this is what he is going to continue to do every time we share the Lord's Supper together. And when we eat and drink trusting in him, he's going to use it to open our eyes. And we'll see him. And we'll know he's our Lord and Savior. That we'll participate with him and he with us. That he'll reveal himself to us and help us and sustain us spiritually as he did the Israelites in the wilderness. The Lord's Supper is a sign of remembrance, looking back to the finished work of Christ and his sacrifice for us. The Lord's Supper is a sign of anticipation, looking forward to his coming again, but it's also a sign of participation. It's how we walk with Christ now. It's of vital importance for us. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you so much that as we take the Lord's Supper together, you cause us to preach the gospel to each other, in our eating and drinking, you cause us to remember all that has gone before us, all you have done for us my Lord Jesus. You cause us to remember his coming and the hope that we have to eat and drink with him in a new heavens and a new earth in his kingdom. We thank you that you also have given this to us as a means by which the Spirit can give grace to your people. And we ask that you might help us to see this truly. And to rejoice in it as we should. Help us to eat and drink by faith not in the Lord's Supper. But by faith in the Lord Jesus. And his work for us. We ask this in his precious name. Amen.